Why not socialism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Mack. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective through discussion. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Eric Mack. Eric is a professor emeritus of philosophy at Tulane University. A lot of his writings focus on the moral foundation of rights, the justification of property rights, historical understandings of economic justice, and the scope of legitimate coercion and the extent, if any, of the legitimate state. He is also the author of many books, including John Locke, Libertarianism, and The Essential Law. When he's not lecturing, he's dealing with the hard problems in libertarian theory that libertarian theorists are often thought not to address. Eric, welcome to The Curious Task. Good. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. So Eric, as we were discussing before, in each episode we start off with a question and go wherever the answers lead us. So let's get right into it. Why not socialism? Yeah. Well, uh, we have to be clear on what socialism is, of course, to be intelligently against it or for it. Um, and there's a transformation in people's uh, views about what socialism is, or advocates of socialism have changed the target in various ways. So it's a kind of a moving target moving object of assessment. I think the first thing that has to be said is that genuine socialism, especially in the 19th century when it rose, uh, was really centered on the idea of the necessity of a centrally planned economy. Mm -hmm. um, and the driving idea more than anything else was that you couldn't possibly have a coherent, well-functioning economy unless it was centrally planned, unless some people at the center of political authority gathered all the information that somehow would be needed to know how different sorts of resources should be used, how different sorts of resources, including human labor, would be used, draw up a nice plan the way you would for constructing a bridge or something like that, and then order people to follow the plan. And the common, common view was that the alternative to that sort of a plan was a chaotic, anarchic, wasteful economy. So competition was wasteful. Uh, competition was also involved conflict between people. If people would only act in accordance with an intelligent, intelligently drawn up, drawn up plan, uh, there wouldn't be conflict of that sort, and everyone would know their place and their job. So in that way, it was actually a fairly, in a certain way, fairly reactionary view. I mean, there was a wave of increased freedom and liberty in the West during the 19th century. And to some extent, it occurs to me that socialism was a reaction to a fear about that freedom and the thought that this freedom couldn't possibly work. And the only way we could continue to have an orderly society was actually to remove some freedom. And, and, Good. Add something, another sentence to it. This is similar to uh, what you have earlier in someone like the philosopher Hobbes, um, who sees that where the modern age is an age in which freedom is growing. He sees demands for freedom all around, but he thinks that freedom necessarily means chaos and conflict between people. And he decides that the only way to really have an orderly society is to establish unquestioned political authority. Hmm. Hobbes doesn't think that that political authority should plan the economy. That's not an issue he's thinking of. But I think in the 19th century, now that I'm, the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that uh, uh, we, it's useful to see the idea of a planned economy as a type of reactionary idea by people who are unable to adjust to the prospects of a world of much more free and autonomous individuals. Were, were these ideas also strengthened by the fact that a lot of people uh, within this ideology did sort of see that there were effectively two classes of people? We had producers and workers, and a lot of the workers felt that, let's call it the future of the, quote, economy was sort of out of their hands, even even more so than some people may feel that now. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's certainly this dimension of um, the exploiters and the exploited, and no doubt that plays a role in it. Um, I think... The French, early French socialists, um, actually didn't particularly worry about that. And they were mostly just captured by this idea of organization. Uh, in Hayek's uh, early and sort of informal book, uh, The Road to Serfdom, he has these wonderful accounts of 
this intellectual battle between France and Germany at the beginning of World War One, where each side, in order to prove that they're the side that deserved to win, argued that they were the more organized society. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and the other society, although it may look organized, uh, they truly haven't yet gotten to the idea of organization. So hmm. I don't, uh, of course there are these claims about uh, injustice, although Marx never s spoke about injustice. Marx thought that that was too moralistic. Um, and he, when he decided that he was going to give a scientific form to socialism, uh, he insisted that uh, it was an economic argument and it was the economic defects of capitalism and therefore the, its inevitable collapse as an economic system, which was the justification for a socialist regime. Socialist regime is actually inevitable, but maybe we can give it a little push every once in a while. So if, I, if I'm understanding one of the things you just said correctly there is that although a lot of people, maybe even today who consider themselves socialists, yeah. look at socialism uh, as a, as a, an answer to injustices that may occur under capitalism from their point of view, you're saying that some of the most original socialist thinkers actually didn't view it that way. It wasn't as much about the morality of the situation as it was about, as you said, the organization. Yeah, so I'm thinking about people like Fourier in France who were much more in the grip of this idea of organization, mm. uh, and I think proposed communities that weren't particularly egalitarian, uh, that wasn't their uh, interest. Uh, and there's no particular reason to link centrally uh, controlled economies with egalitarianism. Somebody might think, I really want the sort of order, I want the stability that they believe will come about if only the economy is centrally planned, and that's it, that's why I want it. Right. And uh, and maybe it's because part of that order and stability will be uh, maintenance of certain sorts of class divisions. Uh, so all of that is possible. And of course, I'm now thinking now immediately of all the uh, dystopian uh, novels about um, about socialistic worlds. Mm. And uh, it's not much of a stretch when you see in these novels that it's a socialized world, uh, but it's a highly hierarchical world right. as well. Uh, so there's no incompatibility. So you can favor the central control without favoring a type of egalitarian cause. But as you know, as we're talking, we'll see that uh, uh, the egalitarianism has become the dominant element. If you use the phrase egalitarian socialism, today it's almost entirely the egalitarianism that's doing the work, mm. um, and that's partly because. Socialism understood as a centrally planned economy has been so deeply intellectually discredited. Right. So the smartest people who call themselves egalitarian socialists today don't really mean socialism in the sense of a centrally planned economy. They have to find some way to describe the system that they want as socialism, but it's usually some fancy fit work. Footwork is, right. is necessary to do that. Has the has over time the focus shifted? Now we're talking about today yeah. to the more moral aspects and the social justiceness of it, rather than the organization. Yes, yes, and I think shifted not just shifted in the sense that not there's not been an explicit understanding in most cases right. that a centrally planned economy is not going to work, and not an explicit understanding of why that's true but just a willingness not to talk about it, <laughs> right? So we don't really hear very much about how the egalitarianism is going to be uh, created or, or, or generated, right? But, uh, but if, we're, if one thinks of oneself as sufficiently egalitarian, you can also add the label socialist. And, right. uh, and you, a general condemnation of capitalism, right, without a corresponding picture of what the alternative system is going to look like economically. And so I think, I mean, most people today in the United States and in Canada, I think, who call themselves democratic socialists, there's almost no content uh, to the socialist part of that story, or wh wh who call themselves egalitarian socialists. And right. The, the meat is in the egalitarianism right. rather than in the socialism. And when you mean that there's no content there, we're, yeah. we're referring back to the economic angle. That's right. Talking about. That's okay. right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, so there'll be particular measures which involve increase of state 
control of some dimension of the economy, um, and which are based on some presumption that at least this dimension of the economy, implicitly the, the assumption is at least this dimension of the economy can be controlled and rationally organized by the state. But I think that assumption is almost never made even explicit, right? Oh, of course we're going to go in and we're going to plan this dimension of the economy, uh, but for the sake of some egalitarian outcome. And the focus is on the outcome there and not at all on whether the means employed actually is going to work. Right. So, so would it be fair to say then that right now anyone who is considering themselves a serious socialist right now, would it be fair to say that they are not really, as you said, for a variety of reasons, focused yeah. on the economics yeah. anymore? Yeah. And, and in that way, as you were saying, um, would it then be fair to say that they are on the economic spectrum just maybe more left-wing progressives? or welfare liberals, as some people say, or on that area? I think that's true, for instance, if you think about the, the candidates, say, for the nomination in the Democratic Party in the United States, and this, those who will describe themselves as democratic socialists. I think, yeah, progressives, left-wing, think that more government in some ill-defined way is good, uh, but uh, don't have this picture that for at least 100 years was crucial to socialist thought right. of the century. The one exception I can think of, which is interesting, is uh, having heard some interview some weeks ago by a representative of a party called something like the Democratic Socialists of America. Right. Uh, and this person said, we like all the things that the people in the Democratic Party who, who are now calling themselves Democratic Socialists are in favor of, hmm. but we like them because they'll be that'll be a movement towards more state power, and those particular proposals won't work, and so we'll have to go beyond that to a truly centralized economy. Right. Uh, but those people are, I assume, in the vast minority. I'm right. Yeah. You know. So, so there is a you're saying there is a pocket of people. Right. There's right. an intellectual right. movement somewhere right. that they are still let's that's call right. classical that's, socialists. That's in right. Quotes. That's right. And may understand. Right what the, may, the more appropriate use of the term would mean. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but largely, the, the people who are considering themselves, as you said, generally socialists now are some form of democratic socialist, or does that, is that, in, is that the same thing as market socialism? Because we talked, we wanted to explore that, or are, yeah. we, are, are we now needing to provide more backdrop for yeah. what that means? Probably, probably more back. I mean, as soon as someone says market socialist, they know that they've taken on a considerable intellectual task, right, because of the common uh, view, the common truth, that markets and socialism, at least socialism as it's traditionally understood, is antithetical to markets, right? So that's got to be a sort of self-conscious intellectual enterprise to spell out what you mean by market socialism. Right. Uh, and we, we might get into some, some of the, the people who have tried to do that. Right. Well, I think... All of that actually provided a great backdrop for what socialism is or maybe isn't or how it's considered today. Um, I think one thing that regardless if somebody is a, let's call it classical socialist or a democratic socialist, all of these people would probably say that uh, the modern capitalist system uh, just fundamentally creates things like greediness, selfishness, radical self-interest is a term you, you hear a lot. Um, I think in, uh, we were talking about uh, G.A. Cohen's book and Why Not Socialism, he sort of starts right off the bat and talks about, you know, there's ultimately this dichotomy. You can have, for example, a camping trip where people are selling each other things, like a fish if they catch one, or renting out pots to each other, or they can share everything. Um, G.A. Cohen was probably, like, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, more of a, a market socialist ultimately towards the end of his life, or... I think you can call him that towards the end of his life. He started out as a pretty straightforward Marxist, with a few exceptions. He didn't accept all Marxist doctrines. And gradually, as he shed those, right. he had to find this other form, this other type of structure 
which he could still call egalitarian socialism. Right. He was committed to the term. Com- Commits the term, okay. So so if he was, like you said, a straightforward Marxist yeah. early in life and later on market yeah. socialist, either way, where you are on that spectrum, I think a lot of people would agree with, with his idea that, well, a capitalist camping trip would be terrible. Yes. A socialist camping yes. trip is a good idea. Yes. Why... Yes. We're talking about why not socialism today. So maybe if that is a fundamental premise that a lot of people buy into, maybe you could tell us why it's fundamentally flawed. Okay. So, of course, there's this issue of the central planned economy. If in, as if that's still part of one's or very close to the center of one's conception of socialism, uh, then there's just this remarkable argument that uh, people like von Mises and, and Hayek uh, uh, produced in the 1920s and 1930s. I may f- I can give some version of that in like three or four sentences, I think, and here's the way it goes. Uh, and the idea, of course, is that a centrally planned economy has to eliminate market prices. Why would there be market prices? Uh, since, after all, there's going to be no negotiation among people about contracts or the exchange of goods because all transfers of resources are going to be part of the plan. Um, but how do you know whether or not a particular use of a resource within a plan is going to be a rational allocation of that resource, whether it makes sense to use this resource, this input, to produce this output? And what Mises realized is that the only way you can know that an allocation is rational is to see how much more valuable the inputs are. But the only way you can know that the outputs are going to be more valuable by the inputs is by knowing what the prices are. (laughs) So you need prices in order to know whether an allocation is rational, an allocation of any resources within an economic system. But centrally planned economies, by definition, eliminate the existence of market prices. So the central planner, in carrying out his mission to be a central planner, has to eliminate the very information that he needs to be a good central planner. So it's impossible to have a successful central plan. And uh, I've, we've mentioned in the conversation that what happened in places like the Soviet Union was that when they had to plan certain sorts of things in the absence of market prices, they would simply have to look abroad to other countries where market prices existed and say, right. oh, so now we know what the value, now we know it would be insane to make buses or washing machines out of titanium. As soon as you see what the relative prices of these things would be, uh, that's insane, right? Mm -hmm. So insofar as socialism and central planners made reasonable decisions, it was by being parasitic upon the information that was generated in the systems that they themselves thought should be destroyed. (laughs) So... so when it comes back to the, the, the camping trip metaphor that good, Cohen good, talked about, good, good. then, of course, we, and, and I think you provided a great backdrop again as to why like this type of idea of everybody sharing and everybody exchanging things and forgetting about money can't scale. So I think we definitely covered that. Um, but I guess I want to drill a bit more into why the conception that you can either share everything and have a relatively yeah. speaking either egalitarian or uh, economy amongst five people yeah. versus... Uh, you know, a completely uh, dispassionate, only self-interested camping trip. Why, why do people right. in Cohen's position or from Cohen's frame of mind think that that's the dichotomy, Good. that there's no between? Because to me, it would seem that if I was going on a camping trip with five friends, the truth's somewhere in between. Yeah. My stuff is my yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if they maybe wanted to go to the gas station, my truck or something, off, I, they might want to throw five bucks in. But, if, but of course, in a, on a smaller scale, we'll share a sandwich or something. So, so... Why is there such? Why does he paint the picture that it's it's that far off from yeah, each other? Yeah. That it's so black and yeah, white. Yeah. So of course he wants to be, there to be the greatest possible distance between his imagined camping trip and his vision of what happens in capitalist society. Right. And then the camping trip is going to be incredibly attractive, and on his vision, capitalist society is profoundly unattractive, and so it's a desperate need to show how the camping trip could be enlarged so that we could have a socialist society overall, not a capitalist. And I'm agreeing, I very much agree with both things that you said, namely that uh, um, in reality, the camping trip is not nearly as distant from capitalist society as Cohen makes it think, 
because the camping trip is not as socialist or as egalitarian as he depicts it as being, and capitalist society is nowhere near as nasty <laughs> right. as he represents it to be. So, um, actually, I've been on a lot of camping trips. I do a lot of camping. Uh, so, I have some experience of this. Can you safely say that either scenario yes. is not what happens? Exactly, exactly. And so, uh, to, and to just flesh that in, so Cohn says that, for instance, uh, uh, every uh, material resource that people have, although they may bring what is nominally their own tents or whatever, their own sleeping bag, everything is treated as collective property on a camping trip. And he says that people's primary motivation on a camping trip is to bring about everybody's equal enjoyment. Right Now, uh, now he's right that a camping trip is different from a normal day in workaday society. As of course, there's going to be differences. Uh, but nobody on, and people on a camping trip don't spend a lot of time tattooing their, uh, or uh, their name on their, uh, on their tents or so on to make sure and say, be sure that you don't touch right. my tent. And so Throwing on. post-it that's notes right. everywhere. That's right, that's right. So it's a, a camping trip is a respite from a bunch of stuff, mm -hmm. including, most importantly, from engaging in productive activity, right? And the big problem, of course, is going to be can you have something just like a camping tr trip and yet actually have a lot of production going on? Uh, but the main thing I want to say about the camping trip is that uh, people do, they go, first of all, it's people who know one another or people who, n who know somebody who knows somebody. There's a second order connection or people who are vouched for by other people. People expect to know and like the other people on camping trips. People on camping trips enjoy what they're doing. They're looking forward to the hiking and the jumping and the rafting. And they enjoy other people enjoying it because that just reaffirms the value of what they're doing. And people enjoy other people enjoying their enjoying it, right? There's this sort of feedback of enjoyment that goes on. And actually, that's a very valuable form of community. It's a really terrific form of community. And you see it even if you're just out hiking for a day and you're in a fairly remote spot right. and you p pass somebody on the trail, you always say hello. You always say, right. if, it's a, if it's a really nice day, you go, beautiful day, right? And, and yeah. we don't have those attitudes as a requirement of some sort of that, socialist arrangement. That's right. right. That's right. And when you say beautiful day to somebody on the trail and they say yes, it's not like you're telling the other person something they don't already know, <laughs> right. right? What you're really saying is both of us feel great for being out here. Right. And we also recognize that each of us feel great, and that's kind of nice. Uh, so, And I think that's the community on a camping trip. Uh, people don't go around in any way thinking about making sure that everybody has an equal uh, amount of enjoyment. If, some, if something bad has happened, right, to somebody, people will say, oh, you know, we sympathize. We understand why you're here. We understand why you feel bad. Um, uh, I've often seen people say, you know, we all had a great time, but Joe, he really had a great time. He enjoyed himself much better. And people are happy about right. that. They don't say, oh, no, that violated equality. Right. Uh, so there's this general disposition to have a certain type of enjoyment, and people luxuriate in it. Uh, and it's terrific. But it's not a socialist enterprise. It's not an egalitarian enterprise. And it's certainly not the caricature of what the, quote, capitalist that's, arrangement would be. That's right. That's right. It's not that, that at all. So Cohn is right to say, right, people are not bargaining all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can I borrow that knife? Sure. Yeah, you have a dollar. That right. doesn't happen. That's right. That's right. Uh, but that doesn't indicate it's a socialist world. It's just uh, a period of time where you're not doing that and you're doing this other thing that everybody recognizes everybody else is enjoying. Right. Right? And so it's terrific. And then on the capitalist side, Cohn's picture is, it's funny because Cohn doesn't say what some people might say, oh, every person feels under the thumb of the giant corporations, or he doesn't even, he, at this point in that book, he doesn't even talk about exploitation. Uh, he just talks about what he thinks is the awfulness of a standard day in market society where you want to go and buy something 
or somebody comes to you and wants to sell it. And his view is that since those moments are motivated by people seeking their own advantage, right? I want to sell something because I want to get some money because, and he usually just stops there. I want to sell it because I want some money. Mm-hmm. Well, That's no. on the small scale, yeah, and then when yeah, you branch yeah, that up, yeah. it gets terrible yeah. overall. Well, but no, but even there, it's terrible. Oh, it's terrible, right, right there. To it, right, it's it's these. It's it's not the sort of macro uh, feature, right? That he's where it's 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 those micro features uh, uh, because he depicts this. It's not even that I'm. It's recognized that if I'm selling something and I want some money, it's because I want to be able to use that money to buy a piece of clothing for myself or buy a piece of clothing for my children. So he goes out of his way to use this. It's the cash reward that everyone is interested. And and he seems to have the view, even though he knows better, that if I get that cash reward, it's, um, it's in some way by hurting the other person who's given me the cash. Uh, the other person is, I see the other person as a source of enrichment, he says, and I see the other person as a threat to my success. It's almost an exact quote. Source of enrichment, oh, that means I see the other person as somebody that I can exploit, somebody that I can pursue my advantage in connection with, even to that person's disadvantage. And he's a threat to my success because instead he might succeed at exploiting me. Uh, and so there's this, this view that all market relationships are deeply antagonistic, deeply conflictual. Which, when you tie it back to his yeah. camping trip metaphor, yes. he's saying if a camping trip looks exactly. like that, it'd be terrible. Exactly. And I think that is a great place to take a break because we provide a brilliant backdrop for the rest of our discussion. And we'll dive more into this in a second. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Sabine Elchidiak, Peter Jaworski, and Ken Dubien. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Uh, Eric, before the break, we were talking about uh, well, what we were really doing is providing a backdrop for our discussion today on socialism. And you were discussing the different kinds of socialism. And we were discussing G.A. Cohen's uh, um, camping trip metaphor and how you basically had these diametrically opposed scenarios where on the one hand, you could have a nice camping trip where people are sharing things and having a great time and everyone's worried about each other's enjoyment, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, you could have this completely detached, uh, self-interested camping trip where people uh, charge each other to borrow a knife mm-hmm. or a, a, a fish that they caught or something like that. Um, and, and you went into that very well before the break. Um, someone reading... Why not socialism by G.A. Cohen for the first time? Let's say this is their first attack on these ideas. They might think, wow, those classical liberals and libertarians, those guys, that does sound terrible. They are selfish. But I I think it's fair to say that you would certainly not view classical liberalism or libertarianism as an avenue that facilitates, you know, unbridled greed and a terrible society. You would probably consider yourself a classical liberal libertarian because you think that things like cooperation and uh, ultimately a civil society can result from it. So I figured let's let's get a, a bit into that. How does how does capitalism markets and and that kind of arrangement actually facilitate cooperation? And let's talk about why we, how we can properly counter these ideas from J.A. Cohen because I, I I mean to someone reading it for the first time as I said, it it might be a very convincing argument and I think he he lays it out quite well in the book. So one of Cohen's errors, and it's a surprising error, is this picture he presents of capitalist society in which the only thing that moves people are uh, self-interested considerations. And I don't mean that he ignores altruistic motives, although people have altruistic motives all the time, um, but and self-interest here, we should be careful, uh, doesn't mean... Uh, gouging out other people's eyes is what I really like to do and all that sort of stuff. Um, But I think he knows, and certainly we know from as far back as Adam Smith, that 
capitalism depends upon rule compliance. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, it's not a sort of morally free zone where everything goes. People are, are worried about themselves primarily and their self-interest, but it's within a framework. That's exactly right. So Smith says, tells his whole story about how uh, self-interested people can coordinate with one another through the market, and each ends up serving the other, and by serving the other, serves his own needs. And he's very, very careful to say, and so this sort of system where people have their own private ends, their own private purposes, but see that the way to advance their own purposes is by helping other people advance their purposes, uh, is a system that utterly depends upon people expecting one another to abide by a bunch of essential rules. And he calls these the principles of justice. And these are rules like don't steal from other people, right. don't cheat other people, fulfill your contracts. The whole structure of a capitalist order depends upon people expecting themselves to abide by these norms and expecting other people to abide by those norms. And the more people expect this sort of norm compliance, the more an atmosphere exists in which people are willing to take risks, work hard, mm -hmm. they have security that what they produce or what they get in trade will be theirs. But the crucial thing is that uh, the interactions that are characteristic of a free market society um, uh, all require that certain forms of treatment of other people, the attacks on people, theft from other people, breaking of contracts with other people, that those be banned and they're morally banned, right? As say Smith, and Smith's best friend, David Hume, is actually the great advocate of this. And he goes through and shows uh, why we all gain if we adopt the rule of not attacking one another. Mm -hmm. We all gain if we adopt the rule of not taking things that people have peacefully acquired. Right. We all gain by all of us abiding by the rule that we keep our contracts, that we keep our, 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 our sort of written promises. Uh, and the whole structure of a free market economy depends upon there being very considerable, it doesn't have to be absolute or universal, compliance with these sorts of rules. Smith says that if people don't, if you don't have that general compliance with rules, the society crumbles into atoms. And so Smith says, to say, I can't possibly be advocating a society of, in which people are atomistic. I'm telling you that there's, we can have a society where people are not atomistic because they're all working within the bounds of these moral rules. It's only if those moral rules, which are characteristic of capitalism and are endorsed by capitalism, if only, it's only when those moral rules disappear or lose their grip right. that we become atoms. So it's just the opposite of, of the sort of unconstrained, bare, raw, naked self-interest that Cohn sees in every market reaction that he right. interaction that he ever that they ever contemplate. And it seems to me that for a lot of people, the word like uh, when you combine self and interest, that's what's kind of the yeah. dirty part for yeah. people. It's almost yeah. as if they, a lot of these thinkers start off by saying your own individual aims, we'd right. be in a better position today that's to right. defend that's it right. because that's, right. that's what ultimately it seems to me they're talking about. That's right. It's a mutually beneficial framework for individuals to pursue whatever aims. And, and when Hayek presents a passage somewhere in which Smith says self-interest, he says, I prefer to change that to purposes. Right, there you go. Uh, and, and he's right, because it's not like we are born with somehow a set of self-interests, right? Right. Uh, there's no content yet to what we want, mm -hmm. right? And people form various sorts of goals, various sorts of commitments, various sorts of relationships. And it's the flourishing of those things which are our projects or our goals. And we say, oh, those are my interests. But we... Those interests are defined by all these attachments and all these connections and all these uh, commitments that we've made. Uh, they're not just so, it's not like one is born and says, oh, what's in my interest? I'm capable of getting uh, sensor, sensory pleasure, mm -hmm. right? And so that's in my interest. 
and I'm going to spend my life maximizing that. Right. right. And unless there's a system that prevents me from doing so, I'm going to go out of control that's, along that's, with all these other people. That's right. And it's going to right. be bad news. That's right. That's right. And, you know, as I try to suggest now, that a lot of these things that are, in some sense, part of our interests, part of our lives, what we want to have in our lives for our lives to go well are things like family. <laughs> right. Things going well for our family. Uh causes that we believe in right. prospering uh so you could all pack that into the word it's my self-interest but it's then lost right. right and so you want to be careful about this and and the classical liberal if he ever says pursuing one's self-interest really should mean and i think usually does mean pursuing this whole array of ends mm -hmm. which makes up the life that is valuable for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what people are talking about. And so what people should be free to do is not self-interest, but pursuing the whole array of ends that people have seen uh, or believe will be rewarding and give them a rich life. Right. And that's what classical liberalism is about, arguing that people have a right to be allowed to do that. Right, and underneath everything you're saying is always, I find it's this focus on the individual yes. the, as, as the smallest unit yes. of society, of course. Yes. And I always like to say, Milton Friedman once said, we call it an individual society, but it's ultimately a family society. Individuals care about themselves yeah. and their families yeah. or, or their loved ones, whoever the, yeah. they may yeah. be. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but the reason why I, I'm stopping to point this out is because the way people, certain people, of, would talk about uh, capitalism today is that the idea that we can either have self-interest in institutions or we can have a benevolent institution, say like a government, yes. to arrange everything. And I find that a lot of discourse today about those two opposed points of views relies a lot upon the idea that whether we're going to go with the quote self-interest angle or we're going to go with a benevolent government, it's ultimately raised above the individual. It's always going over our heads in a sense. Yeah. No, nobody's bringing it right back down to the the individual yeah. smallest unit. And that's what the classical liberals were that's focused on. That's definitely true. So all the things I said about, well, uh, you have to understand that prop, if one properly understands what some people call self-interest, it involves this whole array of different things, including relationships with other people and the importance of relationships with other people. Uh, but nevertheless, that's still an individualistic view, right? It's still, we don't go to a person and say, Whatever your goals or commitments or cherished ends are, you are now to be appropriately required to surrender them to advance the cherished ends of other people. Right? So classical liberalism wants to provide this protection. Right? It's a good thing for everybody to be able to live a valuable, rewarding life and to be able at least to pursue that. And what politics should do is not require one person to give up a valuable life for the sake of advancing, but to ensure that nobody pursues their own valuable life over anybody else's dead body. And is that something that a socialist, whatever stripe they are, yeah. from the pure like egalitarian point yeah. of view, yeah. is actually against? Is that is that fair to say? I, I would say uh, you know would maybe wouldn't want to say I'm against that, right? but does have to say that. Uh, so one thing I actually, uh, um, uh, so here's a sort of, sometimes people say hysterical example, but, but there are egalitarians who take up and address this, and it's the issue of um, eyeball re redistribution. Um, so imagine that uh, there's a society of 12 people, and Sally is very lucky. She has two good eyeballs, and... Ten of the other people in the society only have one good eyeball, and then Sam doesn't have any good eyeballs. Uh, a, a, a genuine egalitarian principle uh, would at least require Sally morally to give up the one eyeball, right? Take it out, pluck it out, put it into Sam's eye socket, right? Uh, we're assuming this is feasible, right? right biologically course, yeah. feasible. But you're saying if someone takes that point of view yeah, seriously yes, from a moral perspective, yes. not economic, we'll put right, that aside, but right. from a moral perspective, if you're right. an egalitarian. Right, right. And not only that, but if Sally refused to do so, she should be required 
to surrender the eyeball. When the knock on the door <laughs> takes place and people say it's the eyeball redistribution team, she has to open the door and travel with them to the operating room. Uh, and to not do that is unjust. This is a requirement of justice if Jordan is taking a strong moral egalitarian stance. And maybe worse yet, right? Uh, suppose that there isn't a Sam. There's just Sally with her two good eyeballs and 10 people with only one eyeball. That's unjust because it's unequal. And the only way to solve the injustice is for Sally to give up one of her, to put it in the garbage can. Hmm. Because otherwise you have an unjust world. Uh, so if equal, and this is, this brings home what seems to me to be the foolishness of thinking that equality itself is a value. Right, right. okay. Um, you know, if we have a very unequal world uh, and some of that involves some people being well below the average and having a really tough time, they're having a really tough time is a bad thing. <laughs> right. But it's not the inequality, right, that's the bad thing. It's those people having a tough time. And so the appropriate uh, response is, is it because of institutions that we now have that some people are having this rough time? Right. Can we change those institutions? Now, a socialist might say, yes, we have to change those institutions and institute um, some sort of strong redistributive uh, system. But typically, classical liberals and libertarians will say, at least most of the time, when people are in those dire straits, it's because of the absence of freedom and the absence of markets and the absence of will define property rights um but under underneath all of that yes. you're sort of saying that when you strip away all the policy considerations yeah. like we said put aside the economic arrangements right. for right. a second you're saying that where the rubber really meets the road with these fundamental differences is on the one hand if you have someone coming from a classical liberal perspective they're taking a fundamentally individualist perspective yes. where that comes yes. with Yes. The benefits of, quote, yes. self-interest, yes, but ultimately the respect of the individual. Yes. Whereas on the other hand, you're saying if someone's a serious, yeah. uh, quote, socialist or egalitarian, right. that they don't fundamentally believe in that individualisticness. That's right. Because the achievement of equality is a type of collective thing, right? It's not, uh, it's not that this individual is in the state of equality or that, in, right? You have equality as a social condition, right? Not, um, and if you're an egalitarian in the examples I just gave, you can favor the example where Sally has the two eyes and everyone else has one, and we require Sally to give up one of her eyes. You have a situation where nobody gains and some, in, no individual gains and some individual loses. And so if you're just looking at individuals, how could this possibly be better? But if you say, oh, but equality itself is good, mm. right? Then it's a better world, right? And I think the individualism that is at the base of classical liberal or libertarianism uh, says, no, you look at the individuals. You look at what's happened to individuals. And then if somebody is really badly off, um, classical liberals and libertarians, of course, are... Uh, cautious about introducing state measures, mm -hmm. um, but there can be times, right, where somebody is worse off because of some injustice that's been done, right. some not yet recognized injustice. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, coercive measures can be used to correct that injustice. Right. And then very often, of course, it's uh, just the absence of the sorts of institutions that libertarians and classical liberals say, if present, would help all of us flourish, and so we want to bring those institutions to bear. Right. So we've we've talked about uh, socialism or egalitarianism from an economic point of view, and talked about why that that might not work. And we've also talked about it from you know the the moral point of view. And we had that great example with, <laughs> with transferring eyes around, and I think that can stand on its own. If, if someone truly believes in that, then that we're not going to solve that in an hour here in total. But um, all of that to say that 
after a discussion like this, a lot of people might be thinking, well, then what's the classical liberal answer? Do classical liberals even care about these issues if someone is, uh, as you said, having a rough time in the economy or, or is disabled in some way or things like that? I think there is this perception out there that classical liberals, libertarians, however you want to label uh, that and that neck of the woods, they simply don't care about yeah. these issues. Yeah. Um, well, is it fair to say that classical liberals are actually convinced of their method because they actually think their their uh, ideal arrangement for society actually works better to solve these issues. Yeah, so I think the answer is yes to that. Um, it'd be a mistake for anybody to say that under my preferred system, nothing would ever go wrong. Right, right? of uh, course. And in fact, uh, it's a bad move when people say, oh, it looks like the institutions you propose would uh, fairly strongly tend to prevent people from being in really dire straits, but I object to these institutions because they don't include a guarantee, right? As though passing a piece of legislation that says people are guaranteed so-and-so mm -hmm. is ever a guarantee. Right, well, uh, int intentions and results, yeah, totally separate yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, So, um, uh, and I think the other thing that I know that I've experienced, so, Another sort of example that uh, philosophers always talk about is the, the, drown, the drowning child. And is there an obligation to jump in? Oh, I'll get my pants wet. My shoes might be damaged to save the drowning. And uh, I think the standard view among libertarians, maybe sort of a little bit more hesitant among classical liberals, is you shouldn't be legally obligated to save the drowning child. You shouldn't be subject to punishment if you don't. Uh, but it's a it's you're a shit <laughs> right <laughs> if you right, don't right and the response of people often is well we don't really believe that you condemn not saving the child because you're not prepared to make it illegal <laughs> you know right. and that i think is is a, a crucial thing for classical liberals to talk about right. that's tying le legality completely that's in tandem right. with morality that's right that's right because what those people are proposing is that morality be that immorality be criminalized and but we all have different views about what constitutes immorality right so this just creates a gigantic war <laughs> in which each group that has a different view of morality has to try to capture the state to enforce its view and to prevent other people from enforcing their view of morality on them. Uh, and it, it also is testimony to people thinking that uh, there's no force, there's no significance in people having certain sort of moral views. So I say I, it would be indecent for me not to save that child. It would be wrong. <laughs> it's something that I should feel terrible about if I don't save the child for the rest of my life. Um, there could be social consequences that's, that's as well. Right. Could be so, <laughs> no so one's going to talk to that's you right. or think that, you're a nice guy. That's right. So you're right. So there's lots of things that can be done short of criminalization, right? Throwing someone in jail. Uh, all sorts of forms of ostracism. And that's dangerous because the wrong people can get ostracized by the wrong people with the wrong motives. Um, but mostly, I think it's important to uh, allow people the freedom to act on their own moral convictions. And uh, and. I don't know. I've heard. I've. I go back and forth on how many people are likely to jump in and save the child. I like to think that uh, uh, if the saving is as low cost or non-risky, if it's a low cost, non-risky saving, almost anybody will do it. And the proposed le legislation only says it should be criminal not to save if it's low cost and non-risky. So mm -hmm. I think people will pretty much always behave in the way that the proposed legislation uh, mandates, and therefore the proposed legislation is largely unnecessary. And it's dangerous because it sets this precedent of criminalizing immorality. Right. Yeah. And this is one example of a yeah. moral conundrum. Yeah. But in reality, I think it ties back to what you were saying before, yes. which is ultimately the classical liberal yeah. would be against the idea that the government should go around legislating a certain kind of morality. Right. And it's actually 
not only um, something we have to live with, but something that's actually favorable to have a society with varying different sets that's of morals, right. as that's long right. as they fit within that's right. the framework. That's, that's right. It's it, it, and again a very sort of the very same idea um, that applies to sort of economic freedom that it allows experimentation and different people can try out different ways of living and uh, we can get information about how well different ways of living mm-hmm. uh, works. Mm-hmm. Uh, Economically, right. the same thing applies to non-economic life. And in fact, John Stuart Mill basically makes the argument for non-economic life, uh, for the freedom of non-economic life in this way, although he, he hedges on right. the economic freedom. Uh, uh, but, uh, and so, yes, you want people to be free to behave in ways that are contrary to the current moral consensus at least free in the sense that they're not subject to legal punishment because we may learn right. a lot from that. And I, and I think it shouldn't go without saying that I don't think you'll find a classical liberal that would, for some odd reason, be legally against the idea that a bunch of people who consider themselves socialists might want to go on some hectares of land and no, do their own no, thing no. over there as their own commune. No. That's not something that I think shouldn't go without saying no, as well. No, they may have a personal, of course, moral and political objection to that where they don't right. believe in that. That's right. But that's not fundamentally incompatible. Yeah. yeah. No, and I mean, it's, it's more than not incompatible. I mean, it's a direct implication. Right. right? Um, uh, any... F- and, I actually had tried this argument along on a number of occasions and have been disappointed in its results. That is to say, I would be debating with some, say, a socialist of some sort, and uh, it would be things on, on, on like what what public school should be like, uh, right? And uh, and I would say, well, I'm completely open to you and your like-minded people establishing schools of the sort that you want, right? It was just everyone should be free to use their own resources to establish any type of school that they think is uh, worth establishing. Uh, and so all you have to do is grant me or everyone else the right to establish schools of their liking, and the answer has been no. no we know the way it should be done right we will accept your offer of freedom but we won't we won't reciprocate it right Uh, i think one of the stronger arguments i've heard against the things we've been saying here is that the way arrangements are today creates a situation where one feels that they are effectively forced to participate in the system we have now but i think it's safe to say that people like you and i would say Maybe that's true. This right now isn't actually the ideal classical liberal yeah. system. We're not going to go yeah. into that for three hours. Yeah. But I, th- I think that's also yeah. a fair thing to say yeah. as well, that it's it's not as if classical liberals are sitting here and saying, wow, what we have right now is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to change it. Right. Everyone's having a great time. Right. And there's nothing to talk about. Right. Right. But I also think that um, uh, there are all sorts of spaces in our society where people who are not standard in various sorts of ways can go and find a place for themselves mm. and i my guess is that it, that's still considerably greater than in most societies in the world so i spend some time out west and i spend some time in little towns out west and i meet all sorts of kind of different people who probably sort of bummed around for a while wandered around for a while stumbled into one of these little towns where they're used to there being other people who are kind, and f- they find themselves a place to live. Or, I mean, a, 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 they find themselves a place to have a life. Mm. Um, and uh, um, I worry that um, if we, the more and more we regulate life, the more and more we say you can't have the, any sort of a job at all unless you get licensed in a certain way and you can pass a certain sort of test. Right. So one of the people I know moderately well his severely dyslexic and really can't read can't write uh stumbled into this little town and just accidentally met a guy who needed somebody who could fix his construction equipment and although this fellow can't read or write he can fix anything (laughs) he doesn't have a license if he was required to have a license he would never get the license and so one of the great things about a sort of complicated, multi-layered, multifaceted society is that there is more likely to be places for these people to 
build a life for themselves. Right. In a regulated society, it's much harder for that to happen. And on this this point of regulation, I think this is actually something that in different ways distinguishes somebody that would consider themselves a classical liberal from obviously a socialist, as we were talking about, and someone who might be also a conservative in a way. Yes. If they have very traditional conservative social views or even political views. Yes, yes definitely. Another thing I sort of wanted to fill in here is that libertarian and classical liberals spend a lot of time talking about voluntary associations. And one of the things that, uh, that people on the left or some sort of authority favorable position uh, don't appreciate is the depth and value of all the different sorts of associations that people form, right? So uh, there's this picture, right? And I think people have this criticism of capitalism and say, oh, well, cap there's just the individual and then there's the market and then there's the business world. <laughs> and there's nothing, right? Everything Back else, to that camp, campsite every, analogy. Everything right? else nothing is in between. swept away. Right. But the crucial thing about a classical liberal world is that it leaves people, people don't have mandatory community. They're not forced into community, which they then have to pretend they like. <laughs> right. Uh, but there's this incredible opportunity for voluntary community. And it's real. I mean, uh, I'm not a believer, and so I don't go to church. I don't belong to a church. But uh, uh, people have all sorts of wonderful, I think, rich experiences as members of churches. But there's all your if you look around, you just see all different sorts of groups of people that have come together and have a genuine version of the community that socialists think will be somehow created by right. political authority. If you and, really look out yeah, there, there's yeah. tons of yes. arrangements yes. you can point to yes. that aren't, yes. quote, yes. Like what the socialists would think of as yeah. strict market arrangements. We're talking here today yeah. as, as part of an event put on by the Institute for Liberal Studies, yeah. right? And, and, yeah. and we didn't pay you to sit here yeah. at this yeah. podcast yeah. table. So th yeah. that, that's another example. Yeah. I think there's, there's tons of examples everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So if I have a, could I give an example? Is that what, oh, of course. Yeah, good. So my son is a whitewater kayaker. Uh, which is a pretty dangerous thing. So it turns out that there's an international community of such people. You know, there may be a couple of hundred top whitewater kayakers in the world, and he can be in his hometown, and somebody will show up and say, if you're going kayaking tomorrow, can I come with you? Mm. Well, the, he doesn't just say that. He says, I'm a friend of Joe, who you met in Chile last year, and he vouches for me that I'm a competent kayaker. You don't have to worry about my drowning. Mm -hmm. My son says, fine, stay with me for three or four days. Mm -hmm. We'll kayak together. He goes somewhere else, the same thing happens. There are rules governing the conduct of kayakers, which have nothing to do with legal rules. Hmm. Uh, so if you save somebody's kayak, somebody has gone swimming, which means he's gotten out of his kayak and the kayak has come right. down the river. If you save somebody's kayak and bring them back, the rule is that person has to buy you two six packs of beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice rule. That's right. So but there's this whole world of rules and understandings and people's lives in all sorts of ways are built at the intersection of these communities. Uh, and all of that is voluntary. Right. Um, and people don't even realize how valuable some of these associations are when they first enter them, but they grow and they become part of people's lives. And uh, all of this in ways that can't possibly be anticipated by political authorities or right. replicated by political authorities. And it really strikes me as if you think that the basic solution to people's lives is government action, right? then none, all of this stuff disappears. Not even government action, yeah. but at the most basic level, someone else's ideal. Yes, yes. Because one thing I like to say all the time is that classical liberals are proud that they don't have all the answers. Yeah. You and I don't want to sit here and arrange society. Right. That's not right. what we want to do. Right, right, right. So bringing it full circle, I always like to conclude like this. We've talked about a lot, but if there's one thing you want someone to take away from this conversation, yeah. it doesn't need to be a few words, but one or two sentences, yeah. ultimately... The main question here was, why not socialism? Yeah. Let's sum it up. Why not? Yeah, because I'm going to use this language because individuals are sacred. 
And in one way or other, socialism requires the subordination of individuals to the whole. Mm, I think we'll leave it there. Eric Mack, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thank it was you. a great My conversation. Pleasure. My pleasure. Great. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.